Welcome, listeners, to the BHL Podcast Series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and it is my pleasure today to be recording in beautiful Concordia, Kansas. Uh, my guest today is Shaley George. Shaley is the curator for the National Orphan Train Complex here in Concordia, and we are going to learn a lot more about uh, the orphan train itself and the history of it, as well as the facilities here in Concordia today. It is an awesome hidden treasure uh, that not enough people know about. So, Shaley, we've been looking forward to this. Thank you for making time and inviting us into your facilities. Absolutely. Thank you for thinking of us. Yeah, I've been. I think a lot of folks will be uh, have their eyes opened by the history and stuff we've got here. So, let's start right in with the history. You know, the orphan train. We'll get in a little later in the podcast to you know, what it was and how it was formed and everything. But talk to me about the the reality or the fact pattern or the demographics that led to the need for an orphan train or, or what caused it to come about. Yeah, so from uh, 1854 to 1929 is when the orphan train ran. And so there's a lot of different issues uh, during that time period. Um, but in 1854, uh, New York City is where the orphan trains start. And at that point, there's a swell in population in New York. And that's not just due to foreign immigration, but domestic of people coming into the city, uh, wanting to, to make it rich, uh, to be like the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, all those people that we think of when we think of New York. And what they found, of course, when we think of streets paved with gold, not a lot of paved streets, uh, a lot of poverty. Um, and a lot of people trying very hard to just survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people like, say, the Irish, 2 million Irish come in through the Irish potato famine, 1846 to 1856, uh, immigrate to the United States. Um, but we're building ourselves as a nation. And New York is the port to come into, um, is the hot spot other than Boston and other cities. And a lot of people get left behind. If you don't come in with money, you're most likely not going to make it very quickly. And so sadly, in the 1850s, there's roughly 10,000 to 30,000 kids on the streets of New York City, and they're alone. Um, Sometimes they've left home because they're 10 or 12, and they think, there's too many mouths to feed, and I'll leave. Or my parents have abandoned me. Or my parents died, one or the other. Um, And there's not an organization to help us, or the church has turned us down, or there's not enough orphanages. And... They're out and by themselves, but there are many orphanages at this point um, who are trying to care for those kids, um, but they're very particular in who they will help. And so the system was a little uh, crowded. So kind of a combination of the sheer number of kids in need of care, whether they were orphaned or left home on their own, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, and then the shortcomings in the infrastructure that existed yeah. to care for them where they were. Yeah, orphanage. the orphanage system is a very old one. Uh, you find the first inklings of it um, in the Roman times. You find it in Byzantium, which is shocking to see that you see, you know, the conquerors go out and bring back orphans of the people that they have just conquered and need a place to put them, and they form these orphanages. And so it's a very old system that is outdated, even by 1850 standards. Yeah. And, and kids are not being prepared for real life. As adults. So you've got this need, you've got these numbers of kids in need of care or some sort of solution. So that leads to the birth of the orphan train 
tell us a little bit about a couple things. First of all, who stepped up and created this infrastructure? Was it an individual? Was it a government agency, et cetera? And how did it work? What was it? What was that infrastructure? Yeah, so uh, the orphan train, uh, the father of the orphan train, as a lot of people put it, is the is Charles Loring Brace. Uh, he was a reverend, uh, and he was a young man. We often picture him uh, as this very old man with this great beard, <laughs> but <laughs> which he, he was, even at 26. But... He was a really idealistic preacher and kind of, I don't want to say a disappointment to his dad, but he didn't really follow the rules, um, which is why he did something that was so different. Um, his dad was a teacher who taught the Beechers. So Harriet Beecher Stowe, Catherine Beecher, uh, I think of, of Kansas, yeah. um, of the Beecher Bible, something For that, sure. you know, really impacted us, um, that he was raised to be very different, to think differently of being a preacher and so when he goes out to be a teacher, he's like, well, that's not really my fit. When he goes out to be a preacher, he looks at p- the pastor Beecher. And he's like, well, he didn't stand behind a pole, but I don't have to do that. So he goes to the Lower East Side. He goes to Blackwell's Island, uh, which is literally an island in the middle of the East River where they put people that they don't believe to be deserving of aid um, or just the lowest means of aid of an almshouse, a poorhouse, an orphanage, the insane asylum, a prison where the prisoners oftentimes take care of the insane. Um, and he goes and he realizes, oh dear God, what are we doing? This is where we're sending women who we don't think are worth our time. Um, and this is wrong. He writes a beautiful letter to his father where he says, I just want to act like Christ and do as Christ has done to me. Um, and I don't care to be a pastor. I don't care how much money I make. I just want to do good. And he has this beautiful, another letter where he comes from Blackwell's and he's just like, I thought I would find the lowest of the low, the least Christian among us. And he's like, that's not what I found at Blackwell's. I find that among businessmen and politicians. Wow. And I'm just like, is this 2000? Oh, Um, (laughs) it could be any time period, you know, and he is just really taking it to the man in 1848. And so the, the important thing to remember about Brace is he's idealistic and he gets it wrong sometimes, but he looked at kids and he looked at the prison system and he saw that so many of the poor were stuck in a cycle that we still see today and releasing kids onto the street at 18 with no structure. I often call it, you know, the boot to the bootstrap. You can have all the work ethic in the world, all the gumption, and have no education, no one to back you up, nothing behind you, and where's your reference? It's all in who you know. We know that. It's still that way today. And so he wanted to set that up for someone. So he was really the first to then, but mm-hmm. I know from our previous conversations, yeah. didn't end up being the only. No. So tell me what he built, and then maybe talk to our listeners about how, you know, what other... Uh, like-minded efforts that spawned and uh, talk at least a little bit because I think it's so interesting about the fact that it was you know I remember asking you the first time we talked well were these public agencies were they private 
I was looking for a nice, tidy answer, and you just kind of laughed and said, oh, my gosh, that's not a, a nice, tidy <laughs> answer. So, yeah, uh, talk a little bit about what he created and then the other things that spawned yeah. and, and who was behind it all. Yeah, the orphan train doesn't have tidy answers. Uh, Charles Lang Brace starts um, a private organization that, that operates fairly publicly. They're very easy to track. Uh, so he starts out with Sunday boys meetings where he's talking to children on the streets and is the first really, in my estimation, to ask what they need. So he starts with a lodging house, which is kind of a, I don't say a free-for-all orphanage, but where kids can come and go as they need. And and then he realizes, I can start every industrial school, which has day classes and night classes and training courses and this lodging house, but really the city is not where you're going to find the best life. And he was very big into Darwin at the time and anthropological theory and he realized I need a different environment for you and so he brings together together a board of very influential members from across the Protestant realm which is really interesting because most orphanages are very set in we help Methodists from our organization and then we help Presbyterians from over here and if you're not baptized in our organization we don't help you and or it could be if you're not Irish or you're not living in this area, we don't help you. And so it was so specific that he just said, I'm not going to play that way. So his first orp- opening board, the one thing that really binds them all together is they want to help kids and they're all abolitionists, which is really important. Um, and so they're from the Presbyterian church, the Unitarian. It's almost like this giant roll call. And he wants to unify them with a simple mission of helping children to get a new home, whether that's in New York or across the United States, have them have religious training of some sort just to be raised to know God and an education and to be somehow good stewards, to be good adults, as some agents put it, useful adults later on. It's very 1800s language. (laughs) (laughs) There's great, (laughs) just like some days I'm like, I don't know if that's a compliment. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You have to take it with a grain of salt and a a healthy dose of 1800s lingo. Mm, A little historical perspective. Yeah, a lot of historical perspective some days. But he decides the first train to go out is to Dowagiac, Michigan. And I often laugh because it took two boat rides and two train trips to get there. So the orphan train is not perfectly named. Um, They never call it that. They call it the placing out department or the immigration department spelled with an E. And 46 kids go out. Uh, They all find homes either in Dowagiac or Iowa City. Um, But the main location is Dowagiac. And then the next year in 1855, two go out to Pennsylvania. And this thing is born. (laughs) And for basically 15 years, it's the Children's Aid Society or the New York Juvenile Asylum uh, placing out kids. Um, But the Children's Aid Society is who inspires other agencies to start. They have the purest, I guess, form of placing out kids that we think of when we think of Orphan Train. Um, But it's not the only way. Mm -hmm. And when you confuse all those ones and put them into one placing out method, it looks really crazy. The Children's Aid Society is the, they do a really good job of trying to create background checks and a checkup program and evolve very quickly over 75 years. And so they would have a town that would want them to come because even though we've forgotten about the orphan drain, people were very clued in 
to this happening, which always shocks me. It's across newspapers. If there is a placement in Virginia, it gets reported in Kansas. And no it's, kidding. Yeah, it's crazy that we just, it just goes. We always think that we're very quick to forget today. Yeah. But it's a thing we've done for centuries. But the orphan train, I don't think I knew that. The orphan train was, from a news perspective, yeah. kind of a nationwide phenomenon. I mean, oh, they yeah. literally were reporting... Mm-hmm. about its successes and and the placements mm-hmm. across country. That's oh, yeah. wild. I mean, it ends up in popular culture. There's, um, I think her name is Annie Johnson. She writes The Little Colonel, which is a Shirley um, Temple movie later on where she does the tap dance scene. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a famous book called um, Big Brother, which is about an orphan training journey. It's 1893, I believe. It's her first book. So if it's in popular fiction clearly it's made its way yeah and so it's really shocking to find that book and go they knew all along (laughs) you know um but you'd have this town and they would want you to come so the agent goes out two weeks ahead of time an agent like a social worker they go two weeks ahead they set up all the advertisements the posters but the most important piece other than where they're going to do the placing out is the local committee and it always gets left out. It kills me because <laughs> it's in the newspaper. It's on the posters that these mostly gentlemen, because those are the ones in the workforce, are going to be a board that you have to pass by. If you want a child, you have to put references in. You have to put your name in. And those gentlemen that are the doctor, the teacher, the, the on the board of education, oftentimes the farm implement dealer, the general store manager, People that know that town backwards and forwards, those people are going to judge you. They help the agent place those kids out. Because I think of, you know, coming into town with 15 kids as an agent from New York. Yeah. You're not going to come in blind. Yeah. That would be really dumb. (laughs) Well, and it kind of speaks to one thing that I, for folks that don't know a lot Mm -hmm. about the orphan train, which up until I'm ashamed to say is a lifelong Kansan, up until not that long ago, neither did I. One of the first questions I had was at its most fundamental level, was this a benevolent effort Mm. or was it, you know, an almost somewhat callous necessity driven Mm -hmm. activity to -hmm. move these kids on? And one of the things that I think is so important to this story is that while there were imperfections along the Mm -hmm. way, the motives were extremely benevolent, very oh, philanthropic, yeah. and mm-hmm. and it, you know, I think some people almost reflexively view it as a sad story, mm-hmm. and I think the more you learn about it, that mm-hmm. is grossly oversimplified to think of it that way. Oh, absolutely. Negativity sells. Mm-hmm. We know that in any medium, um, and it's it's much more exciting to, to read about our heroine going through, tri- you know, tribulations than triumph. Yeah. Um, they need something to end up with. Um, and, and sadly, I think I, if I was any kind of, you know, author, it would be, mine would be very dry because <laughs> I really like the facts and I think it's very exciting, but it's, it's really fascinating to me how organized they were and how those local committees operated to be able to be this living background check. I often talk about it to my, to my little kid visitors and I'm like, you know, we can look at those local committees and find how they voted. Uh, where they went to church, what their kids' names were, thank God for ancestry.com, you know, everything about them. And the kids think, 
God, that's creepy. I'm like, honey, Facebook. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we we freely put it in now. (laughs) Like, it's so much better. Like, I can't wait to be a genealogist 20 years from now or 50 years and be like, why did they put that there? But gosh, I can know everything. Um, But, you know, these, these local committee members are so, you know, benevolent is the best word. Charles Embrace once called an agency that. It's so funny you bring it up. Um, That they really were pulled in and wanting to do something good. And the funny thing is they rarely talk about it later on. Mm -hmm. We've seen grandchildren are like, wait, my my grandpa was on one of those committees? They helped? And we're like, yeah, they, they did a really good job. They did it in Clyde, Kansas in 1911. And they did a really good placement. And they can be reunified, you know, in a second to pull a kid out of a home and put him in a different home or call the agent. And there's eyes on those children from outside of their home, of outside of one church. Um, and that's the beauty of the CIS placing out system is that they're pulling in the village to raise the child and truly utilizing that terminology to like to put it into action. Yeah. And so that local committee helps place those out. The agents there, they do a checkup for throughout that first week of that placement, fill out all the paperwork, do home visits, get everything settled. And then within the next three months, they do a home visit. And then they keep checking up on that kid at least once a year, if not more, um, to make sure they're okay. If an adoption does take place, they have to wait a year, which is pretty standard for today even. Um, oftentimes you see probate judges on those committees to help that facilitate that as well. It all is really strikingly modern mm-hmm. as you describe it. Yeah. And I think that does help put some clarity and reveal some truth in there because I think so many people, and I would absolutely be one of them, mm-hmm. You just think, well, that was so long ago, you know, it, yeah. it couldn't have been, there couldn't have been that much attention placed to the welfare. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's awesome to know that there was. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you one thing. I want to move on mm-hmm. um, and make sure we leave enough time for uh, a couple of things. One of which, which would be our next topic, is some of the massive public policy issues of the day mm-hmm. that were really brought to light by or featured the orphan train but one more observation before we get there you mentioned the beachers Mm -hmm. and the fact that they were big abolitionists there is uh you guys have got a lot of great educational resources and history available and one of those pieces is a map Mm -hmm. and it shows and i know you've told me this map only shows one of the outlets of the orphan train yeah. not all the agencies but on this map um by far the largest population of placements from the orphan train are in the midwest and north midwest the industrial area and so very very few in the south mm-hmm. and i thought one of the most fascinating links that i hadn't thought of until you told me about it talk a little bit about that abolitionist involvement and how that impacted the placement pattern yeah so so we have people come in with that misconception that the orphan train is slave labor a lot. And I think Charles Orenbrace rolls in his grave every time. Because when we look at that map, it often gets misconstrued that, oh, they're going to farm states, agriculture-based states, clearly labor. And when I first came in, I was like, okay, I can kind of see that, but like, let's look at the trains. And and then you put the 1890s train map on there and you're like, oh, wait, <laughs> that's where all the trains are. Uh, because the South definitely, can, you know, it sells itself on waterways. That's how they travel. But also, Charles Wing Brace, the more you look into 
his board, his ethics, the Beechers, majority of his first opening board, there's three of them that sit on the immigrant aid company. And, and being a lifelong Kansan, you probably got taught that in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from Wyoming. We didn't. Um, about the founding of Kansas as a free state of this immigrant aid company in the East, truly funding immigrants to come to Kansas to just vote to be a free state. And there's three board members on the Children's Aid Society. Six of their huge donors within the first like 30 years are all on this immigrant aid company. They had invested interest in free states and in Kansas. And so this you can almost draw the Mason-Dixon line across that map. And yep. you're just like, huh, Missouri sticks in and out of there, which is funny to me, you know, living in Kansas now. Right. You're like, oh, weird. But <laughs> <laughs> somehow they sneak in there. But you can really see their their politics come mm-hmm. out and and where they lie on that that moral line. Um, where kids sneak into like Louisiana and such later on through the New York Foundling Hospital who are Catholic because there's more Catholic settlers there. Um, but it's very blatant once yeah. you see it and you're just like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> yeah, and even looking at the map, you know, I saw the raw data, but even then I didn't get it until mm-hmm. you laid out for me that, A, it's partly a simple case of infrastructure mm-hmm. availability, and then, of course, their abolitionist tendencies. Yeah. And you're right, that map is, it's, it is the Mason-Dixon line, basically. Yeah. It follows. sticks with him, and then his sons take over. And so it sticks with them. Yeah. Because basically all their board members are Union League members. Yeah. And so they're huge union supporters, and it stays. Well, let's shift gears, because I do want to make sure we leave enough time for this. Uh, one of my favorite things, as you've <laughs> helped me learn more about the Orphan Train, is the incredible number of public policy issues of the day, several of which are still very relevant, that the orphan train touched on. You know, it's child welfare, it's industrial policy, it's racial equality. I mean, all of these things come into play. Uh, I'll just leave it open to you, Shaley, to pick, but tell me some of the, you know, stories and the uh, fact patterns and how broad their impact was beyond mm-hmm. simply we need to care for this orphan and get them in a good home. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the other issues that are brought to light. Mm-hmm. Uh, collateral, if you will, but mm-hmm. incredibly important. Yeah. So um, one of my favorite things about the orphan train is that the Roosevelt family is just peppered throughout it. Um, the Roosevelt's on one of the opening boards of the Children's Aid Society. His son, then Teddy Roosevelt, is hugely uh a part of it. And Teddy calls the first um, ever uh, White House Conference on Dependent Children. It's his one of his last acts as president. And that's the first time the federal government really takes notice um, of children and needing to care for them at a federal level and realizing that you know, states are, are not necessarily floundering, but they need a little help and that there needs to be public policy across the board. Um, and so Teddy stepping into it makes sense because Charles Orring Brace was a mentor of his. And so you see this, this influence, this trickle down effect of it across the board. And Teddy would play a huge, huge role in one of the big court cases that comes out of the orphan train movement that affects not the Children's Aid Society, but the New York Foundling Hospital. And so just to understand the Foundling Hospital and why 
this event happens in 1904, the foundling starts in 1869, 15 years after the Children's Aid, and they are Catholic. And they're a little upset that, that Children's Aid Society might be placing Catholic babies in Protestant homes, which is oh no uh, at that time is the right. best way to put it, is a, is a big no-no. <laughs> and they also want to get babies off the street uh, because babies are being found um, and not always in time. And so they are collecting children who are anonymous. Um, they can be left there. They can have a tag. They can fully, fit, you know, parents can fully form, you know, fill out forms for them. Um, but they're always baptized. So we often do like air quotes, Catholic babies <laughs> in Catholic homes. <laughs> because they're not always, but boy, baptism fixes that right. real quick. Um, <laughs> and so... It's a big, you know, it's the punchline of the orphan train of like, did you do your DNA? Because there might be some surprises. Um, and that surprise is Judaism. Um, always. Always. Literally last Saturday, I was trying to figure out how to tell the descendant that had left my office and coming back, like, surprise, I think you're Jewish. Not sure how to say that. Like... Like, I truly think I need, like, a rabbi to come in and just, like, sit with me some days to be, like, give religious counseling and, like, like ethnic counseling? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> just, like, I'm not sure. Because most of our foundlings just took it in stride. Right. And are just like, well, <laughs> like, I've been raised Catholic for 80 years. I'll just literally add a Star of David to my necklace as I sit here like that today. <laughs> because... I mean, we had a priest who oh my was raised Catholic, served 60 years in Nebraska, 80 years old. They're like, well, you're 100% Jewish. <laughs> and he's like, oh my gosh. well, snickerdoodles, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like I just devoted my entire life to Catholicism. And I feel good about that. But, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Father Paul Fangman, God bless him. Uh, so it's, it's interesting because they just kind of, uh, for how much there was a, f just a fight between, you know, Catholic and Protestant, the Jewish children are just sitting over there going, and? Like, what about us? Like, and they're just like, well, we'll take care of you. We'll, ba we'll baptize you. Yeah, we'll yeah. baptize you. Holy water. It'll be fine. Um, and so the Catholic, you know, the New York Foundling Hospital, they just turned 150, and they're an amazing organization, as is the Children's Aid. They still exist. Um, the Foundling wanted to place these Catholic babies, and so they can't just show up in a town and only expect Catholics to come. And so they go throughout their own parishes. They have a, an amazing infrastructure, so they're not going to reinvent the wheel. And so they call on their parish priests. They send out letters of interest and say, please read this to your parish and say, if you are interested in a child and you can pass my critique of the parish. Um, and so their local committee is the parish priest um, and maybe some others ahead of church. Then we will send you a child. But you can also basically specialize not specialize but um narrow down your search and say what eye color hair color age and gender you would like based on what you look like because we want to cut back on the stigma of what that child will go through of being an adopted child and so i was adopted through catholic charities myself and i don't think my parents got to pick what i looked like but boy do i look like them ironically enough um, but it worked out so that many of those foundlings had no idea that they were Catholic. Sorry, <laughs> that was a mess up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no idea they're Jewish. Uh, but right. many of those foundlings 
didn't know that they were adopted for a very long time. And so it sometimes did come as a shock when they were older. Um, but the foundling did that very, you know, strategically so that the children were not questioned, where the Children's Aid Society, it's a very public spectacle, really, um, versus the foundling sneaking in, mm-hmm. placing out those kids. And so we don't find the newspaper articles that we do today for the Children's Aid Society. And so one of the biggest issues that comes out of their placing out method uh, comes in 1904 when they try to place 40 uh, orphans, they call them 40 children, uh, in Arizona. And of course, they have to go to Catholic families. And so people might know where this is going because they're going to Clifton and Marenzi, Arizona. And those are huge mining communities. And the Mexican-Americans or Italians in those areas who are the workforce for those mines are the Catholics in those areas. And so when the priest gets the first letter from the foundling, he has been in his post. uh, He's basically a relief priest at the moment because the normal priest that's there is on vacation in Europe. And he thinks, well, I don't know my congregation too well. I'll let this one, this letter sit for a while. I'm not going to do it. Then the next one comes and he's like, well, okay, we'll ask. And he uses uh, Margarita Chacon, who is uh, married to a Mexican-American, um, and she herself is white. Um, she asks, you know, the, the community that she is a part of, you know, who is interested in taking a child, and the applications go out. She herself gets two children requested and, and approved by the priest. And so the nuns arrive with 40 children, and... It just so happens that that's a really big deal. And, uh, and most orphan trains were met with a lot of excitement and curiosity. And so off to the side are these white Protestant, mostly English, Scottish, newer immigrants to the area. Uh, because, of course, in that area of Arizona, most of those Mexican-American families have been there longer. And so those white Protestant women... S- they basically rush the train car, go up on the vestibule, look inside and go, they're all white children. Are they for us? Can they be? And these are the kids, they're, these kids were already quote unquote placed. It exactly. Was like, it was the Catholic families mm-hmm. that had already been vetted and volunteered yep. and, and that was the plan. That's the plan and they have to go to Catholic families because they're from the foundling. But... Where we look back and we have hindsight 2020, I can see where their confusion lies because if they had ever witnessed a Children's Aid Society placement where kids come in and they are open to the public, it's confusing to see two different placing out methods during that time. But then you realize the mines that their husbands run is a board member. The man that owns those mines is a board member for the Children's Aid Society. You're like, oh, that is very confusing. So one of those women, she does not take no for an answer. So she goes with that organization, you know, that group of kids up to see the placement of those first uh, about 20 kids and is very upset at what she sees. And she wants a child. Her husband is Catholic. She is not. She wants one of them. And from there, it just skyrockets and boils and it turns into a posse situation by nightfall. So the Protestant white families very upset to see white children 
going to families that families of color catholic they're families of color yeah and it should be mentioned that you know not just being families of color but families that are catholic yeah um because there is a lot of anti-catholic sentiment at that moment um and within 10 years of this this issue their catholic church would be bombed twice by the kkk in that area and so that cannot be left unsaid and so these with this one placement by nightfall when the nuns and the rest of the kids have made their way up the mountain to morency the Clifton crowd has riled themselves up into a posse and they decide they're going to go collect those children and they go and kidnap them because there's no other word for it. And so they go get those children. The nuns are now aware. They send George W. Swain, who is the agent for the New York foundling with the priest who multiple times throughout the entire case get threatened with tar and feather. I think there's just a man carrying a bucket constantly around to try to threaten them. And they're like, you can't do this. These are our kids. We're the, they're our wards. They, they're under New York law. And they're like, we don't care. <laughs> they're going to go out to white families. Um, and you're lucky if we don't kill you. And so those kids get placed out the next morning to white families. And the nuns are very lucky within the next few days to make it away with their lives and the rest of the children. And so within the next year, they bring a court case. And they are trying to get their wards back. And it turns into just a huge, huge media story. It is reported from all corners of the United States. It's just ugly. And like the closer you get to the epicenter, the uglier it gets and the more crazy the rumors are. Um, And then the federal government gets involved. Because in 1904, Teddy Roosevelt is president. And he knows about the orphan train. And, and he sends uh, a representative from the attorney general's office on his behalf to try to argue for the nuns. Because even though his dad was never a member of that organization, he's not Catholic. He knows what they're trying to do. And if they lose, it weakens the orphan train argument. And so it goes to the Supreme Court and they lose. They lose all guardianship of those children because they were placed in unresponsible homes and unrespectable homes. Uh, and our, it's a racist, you know. Our, our listeners can't see it, but you just did air quotes again. Unresponsible, unresponsible. homes. Yeah, very. Cle- clearly that was the terminology they oh, yeah. used in the court mm-hmm. case. And, the, and that's the nicest word they used. Yeah. And I say that very <laughs> sarcastically. Um, it is incredibly, it's purely fueled by racism and prejudice. I often... We wrote a huge, we did a big piece for about six weeks in our newspaper on this case and then presented about it at Celebration uh, for our organization. And I did the part of delving into the town and the mindset. And there's past history where the workers of the mine, the people who actually took in those kids, Mexican-American and Italian families who had gone on strike a year previously. So there's already, you know, tension, tension, a lot of, you know, just... I think the kids, it, it made it bubble over. And it also, the Mexican-American kids were only allowed to go to school for three years. And so if those kids got to stay, do they get to go for 12 years or do they get to go for three? Yeah. You know, how are they going to be treated? And it it's is, hard. yeah, it, it is the perfect, I mean, just that one case alone, yeah. and I know that wasn't the only one, mm-hmm. but that one case alone unearths oh, yeah. so many other issues of you know, the public conscience mm-hmm. of the day and also public law, you know, yeah. in so many different areas. It's fascinating. Yeah. 
I would, if we had more time, mm-hmm. I'd like to dive even deeper down into some of those other stories because yeah. I know you have some awesome ones. But I want to make sure we leave time to talk. Uh, you've been hugely informative in terms of the history of the orphan train and who it serves and how it came about. But I don't want to leave here today without talking a little bit about the facility yeah. you have here, which is awesome. So as a segue to that, give me the the short summary for our listeners of the continued legacy. Well, first of all, um, tell us why Concordia is important in the orphan train and why there is a museum here. And then secondly, uh, the continuing legacy in Kansas Mm -hmm. and the reunions and the number of people here and those kind of things, because that's a compelling story too. Yeah. So we actually, as an organization, started in Springdale, Arkansas, of all places. They're wonderful. We call her the Queen Mother. Uh, (laughs) She laughs at Mary Ellen Johnson, who is the sweetest woman on earth, who discovered the orphan train for herself in the 1980s and was doing family research for a friend and discovered a children's aid study placement and had no idea what it meant. Uh, like us, we, as myself, as you did, came to the orphan train blind mm-hmm. and a little upset that they had never heard about it and was shocked and then realized, oh, there's four living riders in my town and they don't know that there's more than just their train. And so she started throwing reunions for them. And on a nationwide level for the survivors that mm-hmm. arrived on the orphan train yeah from across the from across the nation she wanted them to know each other wanted them to have connections and build this family for them but also build an archive because she quickly realized that nobody was doing that that some of the stories were kept within families but there was no dedicated museum and no one truly trying to understand the scope of the orphan train movement, uh, even though some of the organizations like the Children's Aid or Foundling still exist. But they're doing, you know, their work today. They're mm-hmm. still helping kids. And so for 17 years, she collected that archive with the Orphan Train Heritage Society of America until they needed to place out their archive. And so in 2003, we were one of nine that bid to receive those records uh, um, and were awarded that in 2003. And when they came to do their like surprise visit, they were on their way to Madison, another site that was being looked at, and stopped in and just so happened our depot was being used to be, we were fundraising to redo the depot, um, our 1917 Union Pacific Depot that houses our museum. And we had a children's choir and a quartet of gentlemen dressed as railroad workers. <laughs> <laughs> and she just happened to show up with other orphan train riders. And she was like, I have a good feeling about this place. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I always hear that story. And I'm like, thank Jesus. I was going to say, did you tell her, oh, we, we do this every day. All the time. We've always got reenactors yeah, here. Yeah, the so children yeah. come all the yeah. time. <laughs> They walked down from school like it was just like a godsend. And it and really weirdly, those kind of coincidences haven't stopped. Yeah. I had one last week and it just like it made me have goosebumps. But it's so weird how it, it kind of keeps doing that. Serendipity. Uh, it's weird how it happens. But yeah. I'm thankful for it, even though it creeps me out some days. But she felt good about us. And weirdly, at that point, we didn't know we had trains. We knew we had trains surrounding us. We knew uh, there were trains in Cloud County. There were trains to the north all over. But we hadn't found Concordia until about four years ago. 
And turns out that three trains came to us in 1885, um, in January, February, and April of that year. They actually came through Wayne, Kansas. And I will be impressed if anyone is able to pinpoint on a map where Wayne is, because I was very confused <laughs> where Wayne was. And then I'm always so proud when people know, because it was 200 people when those trains came through. And basically 10% of that number were orphan train riders. So they were building their population with orphan train riders. Um, and now it's six people. Um, but it's still a beautiful location to go out and see how different a place those kids came to versus New York. Um, but now we have, we just opened our third building. Uh, we have our research center, which is where we're talking from, uh, where we continue on Mary Ellen's legacy. And we try to open up uh, the history of the orphan train movement and better understand it. So part of your mission, in addition to capturing the history and having the museum and educating, but you are proactively trying to help mm -hmm. um, the remaining survivors mm -hmm. that actually came out on the orphan train to study and know their past. And you mm -hmm. also work with the descendants, right? Yes. Just to understand their history mm -hmm. better. So one thing that I think is really cool here it's very, this is just a, a personal observation, but it's very vibrant mm. here with what you do. You know, so many, as a history buff, I love, I've never found a museum I didn't like. I just, it's, it's awesome, but it's history. Yeah. And it's typically not a living history, mm -hmm. at least not very often. And one thing that's really cool here, you certainly have that historical component, that mm -hmm. educational component but you are doing such active work with living people. Yeah. You are helping people today in 2019 discover their past. Yeah. And yeah, it's just very active and very vibrant. It goes along with the history. It's really cool. Yeah. It's a, a unique position to be in, which I didn't know how to prepare myself for. I don't think I could have coming into museum studies. I just got back uh, in uh, September 28th, I was at a private family reunion uh, to, to give them a talk on the orphan train. I went to Golden, Colorado, and there was about 40 of them at the Mother Cabrini Shrine. And it was such a special moment to to be able to go into a group of descendants, spend the weekend with them. They were, uh, there was 14 of them at one point, siblings. And they were all descendant from their grandmother, who was the orphan train rider. And to be invited in like family, which had happened about a year before when they, some of them uh, were at a, a conference with me for, about orphan train riders and, and they brought me into their family, gave me soup and sat around the, the table with me and another researcher. And it's such a, a different museum where we truly have a family of people, whether that's descendants from, you know, 200 orphan train riders or not, you know, it's 250,000, there's 40 million descendants. And, there's there's and, going to be one of my next yeah, questions. What and, is the number? Yeah, it's, and, you know, it's, and that's at least 40 yeah. million. It's one in 12. At most, it could be one in six. It's an astounding number, and yet uh, it's so fun to be able to, to hear their family secrets. And just to clarify, we're talking about today mm -hmm. of, of the 200 and whatever, 300 yeah. whatever million American citizens, mm -hmm. conservatively, <clears throat> excuse me, 40 million of them yeah. descendants of. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and again, that's probably a conservative number because so yeah. much of the history is yet undiscovered. Yeah, and it's funny because some of those Catholic families, I think of it's the Summer of the Marys this year because we've met so many of them, but uh, Mamie Fontali or Mary uh, had 19 kids. 18 of them survived. Uh, one passed away in the, the war. And so 18 children had children 
and just to think of the sheer number <laughs> right. is insane. I've met about 30 of her either children or descendants of those kids, one of which is a priest in Rome. I, oh, I call him the favorite. I don't think that's true, but <laughs> I think he should be. He's lovely. <laughs> but, you know, just the sheer number of how many people she's related to in Kansas yeah. is insane to me. And if you took her out of the mix, we're not the same as a state. Well, couple of last questions on that note one um what is the the number your best guess mm-hmm. of the number of descendants in kansas oh gosh and then two we're running out of time but give me a real short summary of what a kansas reunion looked like you've talked about yeah. going to reunions in other locations mm-hmm. and you talked about arkansas where it kind of got started mm-hmm. but what are the numbers here in Kansas? And mm-hmm. give us a snapshot of what a Kansas reunion event looks like. Yeah. So uh, for Kansas numbers, we know at least 5,000 came from the Children's Aid, another 5,000 from the New York Foundling Hospital, and about 2,000 from other agencies. So overall, about 12,000 orphan train riders came to Kansas. So that would easily be you know tens of thousands of descendants at mm-hmm. least. And then you get people that move in. I think of there's a, a wonderful teacher at the college whose grandma was placed in Nebraska, but now he's, he's ours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he teaches at Cloud County, and we're keeping him. Uh, but, uh, you know, you have some movement there, but without them, we'd be very, very different. Yeah. Um, and so we're able to celebrate them at our, our reunions, and our, our celebration is every June, the first weekend in June, and it's a continuation of those orphan train rider reunions. How many survivors mm-hmm. do you have that, that you're yeah. aware of? There's roughly about 30 or less. Um, uh-huh. They're all above 90. Wow. And so now they're not able to come to us. Yeah. Um, so the last one I got to chat with is uh, about 94 in Mexico, Missouri. And her first question to me was, am I the oldest? And told me she did not want that title. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and laughed really hard. So she is not. But <laughs> So none of the survivors can make it. And yet, not only did that not spell the end of Mm-mm. the event, it's, it's blossomed, right? You have yeah. all these descendants mm-hmm. that it still means so much to them that yeah. they come. It's descendants. It's people from across the country who are just fascinated that they they get a a piece of it that that sticks with them whether they have an adopted child uh, foster care is their passion um, or they just are compelled I mean we were all kids once and at some point in our life there was a decision made where we had no ability to change it and I think that's compelling to think about with the orphan train is that I always think of Lee Nailing he was a train rider to Texas a lot of things they're acted upon. The decision is made for them. And he often compared that to him being drafted in World War II, that he was happy to do it, that he's happy with the outcome of the orphan train. It doesn't mean that there's not trauma there and that it, it didn't feel like he didn't have a choice. And and so we all have that in our moments of our lives. And so people are drawn to the orphan train so readily because we've all been kids and, and had that moment of no power. And, and how, do, how do we come out of that mm-hmm. and build something so much better? And there's just such compelling stories in the orphan train of, of resiliency and, and just beauty. And, <laughs> and if you took them out of the mix, we would be so incredibly different and, and not have the vibrant country that we do today. Well, I want to offer a little bit of a personal mm-hmm. testimonial as, as a wrap-up here. We didn't even leave time, which is too bad, but there's so much to talk about. Yeah. We just can't cover it in an hour. 
we didn't even leave time to talk about the actual physical infrastructure you have here. And I want listeners to know there is a museum here mm-hmm. with an unbelievable amount of history and artifacts, yeah. super educational, uh, and statues all over mm-hmm. Concordia. It is almost a defining personality yeah. here. I think the orphan train has been for a long time, but now there's a physical manifestation mm-hmm. of that. There are statues around town, and it is amazing to travel around with Shaley. I mean, every statue, she knows <laughs> who the donor was and who the statue or statue represents and the history of it all. Um, but it's captivating when you come here and see it. And so I'll put in a, a hardcore plug if you you. Know, for listeners that find this even remotely intriguing, make time to come by and check out the physical infrastructure behind the story or that illustrates the story. It's pretty amazing. And with that, uh, also, Shaley, want to comment to listeners. I, I, I think they'll probably already know this after listening to the podcast, but your enthusiasm and your passion is infectious. Oh, it's, thank you. you I love my job. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome to run into anybody that loves their job this much, but when... It's such a compelling story, too. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. So uh, thanks to you and your team for hosting us here in Concordia. Anytime. (laughs) Thanks for sharing your story. And I really hope hope some of our listeners come by and say hello and get to experience what you have to share, too. We'd love to have them. (laughs) Very good. Well, BHL podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in to another edition. We will catch you next time on the BHL podcast series.